Thank you. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Laura Lynn and I consider it a joy. It's been a wonderful time spending time with Ed and Crystal and also um, Denver and Brett. And we're really happy to be here with you too this morning. Springvale, Fontaines, congratulations on 10 years partnership in and for the gospel. Well, well done. Ed and I met uh, some 30 years, some 30 plus years ago in seminary, been friends ever since, kept in touch, even though our paths have led to different places. And Ed, I thank God for the friendship, for your encouragement. It has been life-giving over the years. Ed, when I think also of the friendship and how it's been life-giving, I think of your, your generosity and your wisdom. And um, specifically, I don't know if I ever thanked you uh, when I'm thinking of wisdom, generosity for that sermon illustration you shared with me that one time. Do you remember the sermon illustration? And you shared this sermon illustration. You said, Paul, you really need to consider doing this in your church. And, and it was a, a fairly straightforward sermon illustration. It was about consecration and, and the importance of coming to church prepared, ready to serve. The genius of the illustration was to come up on the platform to preach and to start out by giving some lame, the dog ate my sermon, excuses as to why you weren't prepared. And then ask the people, so how did that make you feel? Obviously, you know, people would be thinking, well, that doesn't make me feel good, and I've had a hard week too, and why should you get off like this? And then dive into the text and the sermon that was prepared. And, and you underscored to me, you said, if you're going to do this, you need to make sure it's believable. Nobody should know that this is just a joke. So I took you up on it. Not even Laura Lynn knew about this sermon illustration. And the Sunday came and I stood up in front of the congregation and I started out with, I can't remember, it's probably, you know, the car broke down, it was a busy week, I'm tired. And I'm looking over at Laura Lynn and she's glaring at me. Who is that guy up there? And I was like, whoa, that's distracting. I'm not going to look over there. I start continuing on I, I, and just with some lame excuses. And all of a sudden a guy stands up and he says, don't worry, pastor, I can share something this morning. I wasn't prepared for that one, so I'm trying to think, how do I deal with this? This wasn't planned. And then Monica stands up, and she says, Church, let's all pray for Paul. I noticed at that point in time that there were some tears, even some Kleenexes that were being pulled out, and I froze. I panicked. I was trapped. I don't know if I look beat wet, red, but I was sweating profusely. How do I tell them now that this was all just a joke, a setup? So I sheepishly let them know that this was actually not the case, that I actually was prepared. The rest of the sermon was a blur. But what I can say is that never ever in my 30, almost 30 years of pastoring, have I ever had so many comments after one sermon. And they all went something like this. Never, ever do that to us again. To which I kept nodding my head and just saying repeatedly, I am so, so sorry. I will never do that again. So Ed, I just wanted to say, if I've never thanked you, thank you so very much for that wonderful sermon illustration. I'm just glad that I managed to keep my job. In all seriousness, 
Um, I would say, Laura Lynn and I thank God for both of you and for your family, for your faith, and not just for your faith in the good times, but your faith in the face of trials. We also thank God for your hope, for your hope also in the midst of hurt, and we have shared a lot of those over the years, and there have been many, but you're a people of hope. But most of all, I thank God for your deep, your tenacious love of Jesus, his people, and your neighbors. And by the way, Springvale, we thank God for your faithful witness over these years. I just have a simple exercise for you this morning. It's just a simple mental exercise. There's, there's, you can't lose on this. I'm going to say a word. I'm actually going to say four words. And when I say the, the, the word, I just want you to capture for yourself first image, picture, thought that comes to mind. Okay, it's easy peasy. You can't lose. There's no right or wrong on this, all right? So you ready? I say a word. You just capture first thought or picture that comes to mind. So first word is this. Bark. Bark. What, what, what first came to mind? I heard somebody even say dog. You know, you might have been thinking trees, you know, wonderful time of the year, the colors. You might have been thinking bark. I love desserts. I think bark. I think that lovely snack dessert stuff that you eat. Or you might have been thinking like somebody else, that, that stupid yappy dog next door that kept me up last night, right? Bark. Okay, you're doing well. Next word. Foul. Foul. What are you thinking? What first comes to mind? What picture do you imagine? What thought comes to mind? Well, some of you, if you're sports fans, you're that way minded, you may be thinking, you know, basketball or some sport. Foul in that sense. You know, the ref missed that one. Or you might also be thinking, if there's any hunters in the midst, you're thinking, yeah, it's that time of year. I'm thinking ducks. That's what I pictured. Ducks came to mind. Or you might be thinking, oh, yeah, it's that broccoli in the fridge that uh, I, I haven't dealt with. That's rotting away and the foul smell when we open up the door. All right, you're doing well. We just got two more, real quick. All right, mummy. Mummy, what's the first thought that comes to mind? Somebody you run to? Or like Scooby-Doo, somebody you run away from? Okay, last one. Church. Church. What picture? What image? What thought comes to mind? Well, is it building? It's very common. That's where a lot of us think. Is it maybe like a service like we're having right now? Or is it like Mr. Bean, you know, time for a nap? Sadly, sadly has been saying that the most common image that describes the church today is a sporting event. You've probably heard this, a sporting event where 20 people are in desperate need of rest, surrounded by 20,000 people in desperate need of exercise. Church. Just one word. It's a very simple word. It's actually a fairly common word. And yet our understanding of that word, what first comes to mind, has the power to fuel and to shape a wonderful present and a hopeful future or to destroy all hope. Church. My hope actually for our little time together this morning is that in some significant ways and not so small ways, that when you think a church, that, that what comes to mind changes and transforms you and fills you with hope. And so to do that, we're going to be looking in our Bibles at the first 
use of the word church in the Bible. So Matthew 16, Matthew 16. I believe the words are going to be up on the screen to the passage, but I encourage you, fire up your electronic device, open your Bible as well, as we look at Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. Follow along as I read. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. What about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. But before we go any further, just a couple contextual notes. First one is that last verse, then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. That was a temporary, short-lived command in the context. So, So don't go making this your life or your theme verse. The second note of context is as we come to this passage in Matthew, it's a turning point. It marks a critical turning point. Jesus, God incarnate, came to earth to break the power of sin and death over us. But he also came to start a movement to prepare a grace-filled people who, empowered by the Holy Spirit, would stop at nothing to tell people about this wonderful forgiveness that is ours through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And that they would go to the ends of the earth to tell this good news. And they would tell it to everyone, no matter age, gender, status, race, doesn't matter. Economic situation doesn't matter. And Jesus has been pouring into his disciples, and and they have witnessed not only his powerful miracles, but his powerful teaching. They know that there is something special about Jesus. But the question is, is, do they get it? Do they understand who he is, why he came, and the implications going forward? And so Jesus asked them a leading question. Who do people say I am? And then Jesus asks them a defining question. You, who do you say I am? You know, when I think of that question, I think that wasn't just for the disciples then, but that is the question of history. That is even the question for each and every one of us today. Who do you say Jesus is? Paul, who is Jesus to you? It's a question that that goes beyond just the intellect. It's a question that goes beyond just, well, I was born, I was raised. It's a question that probes the depths of our faith and the depths of our souls. Who do you say Jesus is? Without fully understanding all the implications or the mechanics, Peter got it. 
You are God. You are Messiah, the promised one. And this, of course, brought great joy to Jesus, right? Verse 17. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. His answer was the expression of a spiritual awakening, what what John would in the gospel call new birth or rebirth, a spiritual rebirth, being born again. And I want you to note that, that Jesus didn't coerce Peter's confession. It was given freely. And that's true for each one of us today as we face that question, who do you say Jesus is? God gives us the evidence, and there is evidence in our world today, ongoing evidence of the glory of God, of the existence of God, of the love of God. And there's also the Holy Spirit that calls, that tugs at our hearts, that that says to us, these these things that you are driving towards, these things that you keep, keep thirsting after, lusting after, that don't satisfy, that's because you were meant for something much greater. You were meant for God. And so God gives us the evidence. God draws us to him. But it's up to us whether we will confess or not. And so I just put it before you. That's between you and God. But who do you say Jesus is? And I'm not saying it's easy. I've had my struggles. I've had my doubts. But who do you say Jesus is? And and if you are struggling, if you have doubts, if you are, sure, I know that there are people here, staff and beyond, elders, leaders, who'd like nothing more than to share with you. But, But don't let that question go until you have found the answer. Verse 18, we need to keep moving on. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or the gates of hell, will not overcome it. That's the first use of the word church. Church. It's an interesting word. I'm not going to get into the complexities of it, but it's a compound word. And it basically means the assembly or, or gathering of people called out for something. So when Jesus said, I tell you that you are Petrus, Peter, or rock, and that on this Petra, I will build my ecclesia, my called out on a mission people, the last thing that Peter was probably thinking of, or the disciples when they heard this, was was of building or buildings, or anything having to do with spectatorship. The image that probably came to their mind, the first thought, was when Jesus sent them out on a mission collectively to go and to preach the good news of the kingdom of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. And they experienced God's presence and power as they took on the very gates of hell, as they waged spiritual battle. That's probably the first thought that came to mind. That, that, that of a people on this critical rescue mission. I hope you understand that Jesus' words have incredible, powerful implications for us still today. The power to change not only the way we see and think about church, but the way we go about church, the way we are about church, but even more, the power to change the way we experience God. And so for just the short time that we have left, I want to focus in on that one short but powerful phrase, 
I will build my church. I will build my church. I will build my church. I will build my church, said Jesus. Not Peter, not one of the disciples, not a pastor, not an elder, not you, not me, said Jesus. When you and I say church, when we hear church, we ought to think Jesus. Jesus. That is the first thought that should capture our imagination. And not just Jesus, arms outstretched, nailed to a cross, saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Yes, that Jesus, but not just that Jesus. Nor the Jesus that, that after his death and resurrection in our place, after his death, sorry, in our place, and he's arisen, and, and there's the Marys who are falling at his feet and worshiping him. No, not just that Jesus either after his resurrection. No, I'm thinking of the Jesus who reigns and who rules today. John, in Revelation, has this vision. He's taken up to the very throne room of God, and he sees God. And how do you describe God? It's, it's, it's awkward. It's hard. But he sees God. And, and God is holding this scroll, this sealed scroll, and, and the scroll represents the culmination of all of history and all of eternity. And so it's an amazing scene, but John starts to weep because nobody is found worthy of, of breaking the seal and opening the scroll. And so he starts to weep, but an elder comes over to him and says, don't weep, don't weep. There is one who is worthy. Enter Jesus and he takes, and he holds the scroll. And you know what happens when he does? All of heaven breaks out into glorious worship. And we're not just talking, hey, you know, like, let's raise a hand. We're talking falling to their faces, worship of the Jesus who holds all eternity, destiny, and eternity in his hands. That Jesus said, I will build my church. And so my encouragement to you, Springvale, is to be of great courage and to let the vision of Jesus, Jesus crucified, Jesus risen again, but also Jesus reigning today, let that vision of Jesus fuel your worship, but also drive you to mission. Let that vision of Jesus define who you are as a church, even in your struggles, even in your trials, your doubts, and your fears. And let that vision of Jesus fuel you in your service and in your love of one another and of your neighbors. When you hear or say the word church, think King Jesus. I will build. Will build. Well, it's not uncommon for us. The first thing that comes to mind when we think build is build things. Build something. You know, we, we, we think buildings. It's just, what do we do? So we think bricks, mortars, asphalt, wood, shingles, buildings, houses, apartments, shopping malls. When Jesus, what Jesus had in mind was, was not a monument with a plaque to it, to God's glory, and that's not a bad thing, but, but that's not ultimately what Jesus had in mind. It wasn't a, a monument to God's glory. It was a movement of people to God's glory. A people on mission. A God-confessing people. 
spirit indwelt, taking on the very gates of hell that hold the human heart captive. I will build. Picture Peter, who arguably preached the first church sermon in the book of Acts, out there in the open marketplace, pointing people to Jesus Christ. Yes, he is the Messiah, the one who was promised and who died in our place and for our sins to reconcile us to God. Picture Peter that day preaching the gospel, and then picture afterwards the believers gathering and talking with the people in the open marketplace saying, yeah, let me tell you more about Jesus. Matter of fact, why don't you come on over for lunch, and we will, we will continue sharing Christ with you. Jesus was building his church in Jerusalem that day, but it didn't stop there, did it? It didn't stop there. Oh, you can fast forward to another picture. would be Paul by a local river talking with, with a local businesswoman by, by the name of Lydia and sharing the gospel with her. And, and that was Jesus building his church in Philippi. And ever since then, Jesus has been building his church. And that includes you, Springvale. He's been building his church. Hey, hey, those churches weren't perfect. Far from it. They were works in progress. It was messy. We know that even from the New Testament, from the writings. That's the way it is. So then you're thinking, well, what's the point? What's so glorious about it? What's so glorious about it is Jesus. You take the case of what we have in the New Testament. Jesus was building his church through, through everyday people of every walk of life and calling them to abundant life and to eternal life. We're talking royal officials and slaves. We're talking educated and outcasts. And Jesus is continuing to build his church today. And so, friend, when you think of church, think of King Jesus reigning and ruling today, and think of King Jesus working through you. I will build my church. My church. Not I will build you a church, Peter. Not I will build your church. But I will build my church. Wow. I'll let that sink in for a second. What, what if we took me, us, out of the equation, and when we thought of church, we put Jesus firmly back into the driver's seat? How would that change things? How would that change things? And I'm not talking about tripping up over language. It's awkward for us, you know, when we talk about church. And there's a natural tendency and a reason why we say my church, because this is where I go and this is where I belong to. But what if it was firmly anchored in our thinking, in our hearts, in our imagination that this isn't my church? This is Jesus' church. And he's the king who reigns. And he's the king who's coming. Can you, can you start to think of how it might change? It might even change the way we talk about church, wouldn't it? We might not take on so much the posture of a, of a gloomy Glen or of a negative Nancy. How it would change? Oh, this is Jesus' church. Yeah, it's not perfect. Oh, it's a work in progress, but Jesus is at work. The Spirit has been poured out. It might even change the way we pray. even the way we dream about church. It would definitely change the reason why we gather as a church and what we do when we're gathered as a church and even what happens in between our gatherings. 
I think it would even radically change the way we look at other churches, right? Because typically the way we look at other churches is how? They're the competition. You know, how they got this program, but we got this. And how many do they see? And what's their budget? And oh yeah, but our cafe has the best lattes. Like, really? But in the context of I will build my church, said Jesus, all of a sudden, whole new context. Whole new posture, whole new picture. Oh, it's like, how can I be a cheerleader for what's going on in God's kingdom work and in his church, even if it isn't within my tribe or my circles? And how can we cooperate, even if it's just praying and saying, God, would you move? Would you build your church? So when you think or say church, Oh, may this be like an earworm for you as it is for me. May we picture Jesus in all his glory and glory to come and how he desperately wants to use us. Not because God can't do it without us, but because God has always chosen to do it with us and through us, that we might experience his presence, his glory, his joy, and fellowship with God, the abundant life. Well, I think it's probably fair to say that when I first asked the question, church, and what first image comes to mind, it probably wasn't Jesus for most. And I'm including myself in this. There's a lot of other things that come to mind. But my prayer for you, Springville, as it is for me, and this is not a trying to preach to you or at you, like this is the boat that I find myself in after some 30 years of being a pastor, after some 40 plus years of being a believer, is to have my heart captured by this vision of what church is in all its glory. It is Jesus Christ and his people, the spirit being poured out on his people who are proclaiming his kingdom and living out surrendered to his glory. O Springvale, be of great courage. King Jesus is alive. He is working in your midst. He is moving in this world. And he has plans and purposes for each one of us. And part of really tapping into those is coming to that point where we start seeing church for what it really is, Jesus, and how he wants to use me and you. So when I say church, what first comes to mind? I hope, I hope it's Jesus. Will you join me in a word of prayer? God, thank you. I thank you for the privilege and honor of being able to share here this morning. God, I thank you for your church. And God, we recognize that for some, the word brings up hurt, pain, frustration, disappointment, fear, maybe even doubt. But God, I thank you that you are greater than all these things and that God, you have the power through the Holy Spirit that you have given to us to recapture, to reclaim a vision and what a need of vision in this day and age of, of what church really is, a vision that looks to you, King Jesus, in all your glory. And so God, we humbly pray, will you capture our hearts today? Will you speak to each and every one of us Will you encourage your church? Breathe hope, 
joy, peace, unity, and for your glory. And this we pray in Jesus' name. And together we can say, amen.